I want to read a scripture to us, and it's going to sound familiar to you. You ready for this? Visualize this as much as you're able to. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked at the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Did it sound familiar? Is this a teaching that you've heard from Jesus maybe in another place or two? Well, let's take a pop quiz to start off the sermon. This, uh, this sermon, it, it's already been uh, titled, The Sermon No One Wants to Hear, so I'm going to give a pop quiz this morning just for fun. There's the Sermon on the Mount and there's the Sermon on the Plain. Are they the same or are they different? It's difficult to think Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, is not basically the same as Luke's Sermon on the Mount, or vice versa. Or are they? Are they alike? In Luke's Gospel, sometimes known as the Lesser Sermon, that's the way uh, scholars and mostly preachers, I suppose, have given a title to the sermon in Luke. They call it the lesser sermon, uh, which sort of implies that Matthew is the greater sermon in implication. It's similar to the sermon that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, but it has an edgier, grittier quality to it. There's something different about it. In contrast, Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, has this rubbed-over feeling, like, like a rock that has been in the bottom of the stream for centuries, and it is smoothed out in so many ways that it's become something less rocky, less, uh, less aggravated, we might say. So are they different, or are they the same? In Luke... Jesus descends from the mountaintop where he has been praying down to a level place. And this is where, in biblical studies, one of the things we don't pay much attention to is topography. 
We don't think so much about the way the land is put together, that it's knitted together, that it has something about the context of the thing that happens on it. We don't spend much time thinking about that. We sort of take topography, we take location out of the story and begin to hear it just, you know, on the basis of words. But what happens in a particular place and the words that are said are often framed by the land itself. It's curious how a place affects what takes place in that particular place. And when we listen to what he says, we're struck by its clarity and its directness. In Luke, Luke is not polished. Luke is not poetic. He is not apologizing to anyone. He just hangs it out there. He's instead, he's blunt, he's radical, he's shocking. In Luke, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, period. Blessed are the poor. And Matthew softens it euphemistically by adding, blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, how sweet is that? How kind is that? where Luke says simply, blessed are the hungry. Matthew softens that as well by saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, that's so much easier to take. See the difference? One commentator observed that when we hear Luke's Sermon on the Plain with all its directness and cutting simplicity, we want to scurry back to Matthew because it's been softened for us. The meaning of Jesus' teaching has been whittled down in a way. It's been softened in a way that we can hear it. Matthew is where all the dirty work of watering down the gospel has been done for us. And we can effectively ignore it, might be the way that we think. It has less of a cling to us. It's less demanding upon us. And Luke's gospel is harder to handle because we really have fewer ways to dodge what he's trying to say. Luke goes on to say, blessed are those who weep. Simple. Blessed are those who are hated because of me. Those are the blessings? This is what is so confounding about this Sermon on the Plain. What kind of blessings are those? to be poor and hungry and crying and ostracized. These are the blessings of God, Jesus is saying. But that's only half of it because he goes even further by adding a certain number of pronounced curses. Woe to you, he says. This is the part B of his sermon. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who are laughing. And woe to you when all shall speak well of you. Those are curses? Really? To be rich? That sounds okay with me. To be satisfied? Okay, I, I like a good meal. How about you? The church has been known for picnics and potlucks. We sort of like this satisfied feeling of church. To be laughing, that's a curse. 
We need more laughter in the world. To be laughing is a curse. To be well-liked. Wow. What's going on here? Jesus is making something that's not so good to be wonderful. And then taking those things that we want to live for and turning them around and making them to be understood as a curse itself. Which one of us would think that those are the very things that we want? What in the world is Jesus talking about? We're not poor. There's not a person here who's poor. And more than that, we don't want to be. This very idea that he says that you're blessed if you're poor, none of us want to be poor. Let's just say it out loud. It's okay to say it. And while we don't think of ourselves as rich, most of the world does. As one person put it, if you're able to decide what you'll have for dinner or lunch, you'll have choices, don't you know, of what you want to eat and where you want to eat and with whom. Or if you have some method of getting around town, whenever you want, however you wish to, it's not that hard. Most of us have figured this out. We can go anywhere we wish, and we have a change of clothes or comfortable shoes. We have clean underwear and socks. I mean, these are the signs of the affluent life that we live. And guess what? You can't get around this. We're all rich. Our problem is that we're comparing our economic state with the world's elite. We're comparing ourselves in the wrong direction. We compare ourselves as what the television does is it amplifies wealth. No one wants to watch a show about a middle-class family. They hardly ever do. No one wants to watch a show about the homeless. We don't watch about that. We watch about the million-dollar houses that are for sale. and We think about the cars, and we, all of this is just amplified on television. We're certainly not hungry. Most of us have too much to eat. We throw away enough food in America to feed a good part of the hungry world. What about weeping? Maybe we qualify for this in some strange sense of blessing. Life is filled with terrible injustices and there's a sense in which perhaps we can share in some of the world's pain. Maybe this is something that's easier for us to get a hold of. All of our money and our resources that we have at our fingertips cannot completely shield us from the feeling of suffering or loss. It's no small irony that America is filled with depressed and anxious people. If you inject us with truth serum, you will find how absolutely devastating that can be inside some of us. It's also true that suffering is nothing, nothing to compare to the daily reminders of injustice and pain that the poor and the dispossessed feel. So what about this fourth blessing? Being persecuted for Jesus' sake. I'm not sure we're qualified to even speak to this. Most people don't pay any attention to us. The fact that we are involved in a faith community, that we have a faith. 
I would think that many people are, just look upon us as irrelevant on this topic. So is anyone keeping score? Are you keeping score out there? At best, we might claim one out of four blessings. Maybe. And if you look on the other side of the ledger, we probably stand in judgment for at least three out of four woes. That's a terrible grade on this pop quiz. That's a terrible sense of uh, fulfilling the scripture of what Jesus is trying to talk about. It's no small irony that the woes are some of our most desired qualities in life. If we were really honest, we would say, Jesus, these are the things I want. Thank you for bringing them up. I'm so sorry you have them mislabeled as woes. These are blessings. We love being rich. We love being full. We love being happy. We spend a great portion of our time and our livelihood seeking wealth. We watch the bottom line. We try to make sure that we're not redlining our income and spending it out and having nothing left over. We like to have a little something left over. We like to slowly watch it build up. We spend a great portion of our time and our livelihood seeking wealth. And we earnestly desire to be happy and to laugh. We love that and want everyone to be like us. We want everybody to get in on the joke and the fun and the laughter and the happiness that we share. Who wouldn't want these things? And so we're forced to ask, what was Jesus thinking? What was he talking about? Fred Craddock was uh, a 20th century, maybe the first part of the 21st century, one of the premier ministers or preachers in America. Um, he's a wonderfully bright guy. He went everywhere. He was one of the guys who was very crucial in helping us understand the New Testament in particular. And he gives us some clues about how to understand this particular uh, passage of Scripture. Unlike the Old Testament blessings and woes found in Deuteronomy, that's where they, they are sourced out of. We go to Deuteronomy to read about blessings and woes. These are not based on performance. They're not based on anything that you say or do. They're pronouncements about the way things either are or someday will be. There's no exhortation to do something in order to receive something in Jesus' sermon. It's not one of those kind of deals where if you act right, this will happen to you. That's a pretty Old Testament um, combination. These words are best understood as a window in which we understand that the kingdom of God is an inverted world. That's what's going on in this text. Jesus is coming along and he's taking that which we normally think is, is the way things are and he's flipping them over. I watched John Claypool with a um, retreat center. He was one of the Bible study leaders uh, for middle school camp of all things. John Claypool, one of the really absolute brightest ministers I've ever heard in my life. He was astounding. Uh, I think about him a lot. He was in a room in one of these, sort of a little conference room with junior high kids. Can you imagine? And 
he had them pair up and they lined the the perimeter of the room and he had them partner up so that one person got down and got on his or her head and the other one lifted his feet up against the wall facing the inside of the room where Claypool was and Claypool had a clear glass of water about half full and he said to them tell me what you see and they sort of mumbled around and finally someone admitted what they could see with their eyes was that the water was upside down in the glass that's not what you and I would see because we would be standing up and looking at it right side up Claypool wanted them to understand the sense of the inverted world there's something here that's useful for us to think about that if we will turn things over on occasion and look at them from an inverted point of view illumination can occur something different can happen Jesus is pointing us to a new way of seeing the world he's helping us understand that the kingdom of God that God is building needs all of us to make a shift in our thinking and our believing Jesus needs us to understand we live in a different world than what it appears and that we have to participate in a new reality Jesus is announcing the symmetry of the four blessings and the four woes are the announcement that the reign of God is coming to change things we can't just use our straight line logic and figure things out and come out in the right place all the time there's more going on to this these are the pronouncements of the gospel with all of its power to heal and to comfort and it's offered freely to everyone who hears and heeds the announcement Luke tells us this is the topography part Luke tells us that when Jesus came down off the mountain and again you can visualize the walking down you just keep taking the path downward until it finally levels out you've left the slope and now you're down in the plain this is what Luke is emphasizing that Jesus already has said so eloquently that his ministry is intended for all those who are poor and all those who are captives and for the blind and for those who are oppressed this is the very starting word of Jesus in describing his ministry he goes back into Hebrew prophecy and he talks about this understanding of the world and Jesus is saying that the gospel was meant for everyone not just the privileged not just the rich not just the powerful that the gospel that Jesus has come to declare is is for everyone I can almost hear you thinking I get it this is the way it'll be someday when the end of time comes probably this is about the kingdom of the pie in the sky right this is not about now look around it's not about like now so if this message Jesus is Jesus method a message 
Jesus' way of describing some moment in the future. Is this over the horizon? And if it is, just let us know, right? It'd be okay. It, it'll help me square away the time and space and circumstance issue uh, of conflict that I have. And I think Luke would put into Jesus' mouth the answer to that is this message a way of some no moment in the future? I think Jesus is saying yes and no. In this sermon, Luke helps us hear that Jesus is saying that the present and the future are somehow mysteriously linked together. That there's some sense in which the present moment and the future have a connection. Maybe not like a wormhole or that kind of thing, but at least we understand that this in the here and the now is connected to that which is out in the future. The eschatological reality of someday is already beginning with the advent of Jesus. The way I think of this is tipping over the first domino. Jesus came into the world to tip over the first domino on this big idea. And our part of the of the uh, equation is to continue to see the inverted world and to understand that Jesus is a part of what we're doing today and here and now and when you pick up something and drop it off at the clothes closet or the food pantry or you stand in line handing out supplies to people when that happens you are a part of the chain of events that is going around in the world. It's not fulfilled yet. Jesus helps us hear that, um, Luke help, helps us hear that Jesus is saying that the present and the future are somehow joined together. Jesus has already announced as much. He's already said it. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You can't take that away. You can't just relegate it to the future, to some mysterious time around the corner. You can't do that. You have to say that something dramatic has happened in the Jesus that has come into the world. And the today that Jesus announced continues through to the present moment. Day after day after day after day after day today. We are in the sequence of things that Jesus has brought about and that he has made real and it's in our hands. All of the energy that has gone into this in the past is in the moment. We live in the moment. It has always been the work of the church to make a future sense of today a reality in this present moment. The prophecy of Isaiah concerning the poor and the imprisoned and the diseased and the oppressed is no longer just a hope. It is the agenda for all the followers of Jesus. It's something worth thinking about as we think about what it means for us to walk out of this moment of worship and to go somewhere out into the world of great need. Are we willing to think about Jesus, about the world that is coming, that is not fully here, and yet we're willing to be God's partners to make it so? That calls for faith. 
for us to see our role in this. That causes us to take up the, the action, the verb of faith, and make it real. To do something about it. And the question is, can you see it? Can we see it as the people of God? Everything that we do is headed in that direction. Can we be a part of that together? If you can see it, will you commit yourself to making it so? Amen.